Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Clef Notes. I am Seth. And I'm Allie. And today we will be talking about... The castrati. Thank you. I didn't want to mess it up, so I'm going <laughs> to let you say it. Um, you'll notice that this episode's coming out two days late. Uh, we're still learning about how hard it is to make sure it comes out the same way every day. Or every release day. Yeah, so. and how much research it takes on my part for each subject, depending on how much I already know. Yeah, so give us a break. <laughs> Please. <laughs> All right, um, so Castrati. Yeah, and I guess before we get into this episode, we should probably say that it is most likely not for all audiences, just because we'll be talking about... Um, men who have been castrated as boys and especially for younger audiences that might be a little uncomfortable or if you have some trauma relating to that maybe you don't want to listen to this either anyway um just putting that out there before we begin for real yeah okay but now let's begin for real so we'll be using castrato and castrati um, pretty much interchangeably. Castrato is the singular in Italian and castrati is the plural. Um, and who are they? Well, who are they indeed? That's a good question, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> so the Oxford Music History Dictionary defines castrato as, in the Baroque era, a male singer whose pre-adolescent vocal range was made permanent through castration. The resulting unique sonority produced internationally admired stars who sang in the difficult, virtuosic style demanded by composers and audiences of the time. So since it's Italian, an Italian word, I'm assuming this practice started in Italy? Yeah, so this practice started in Italy and really mostly only occurred in Italy, although oh. the castrati moved throughout Europe and were popular throughout other countries as well. That's cool. Um, so you said there was like, I guess the practice was mostly in Italy. Is that, did like other composers like make use of castrati, like German composers and French as well, even though I guess the people themselves were Italian? Yes, they did. And actually you are getting way <laughs> ahead of me, but that's totally fine. <laughs> we can back it up. Yeah, we're, we'll backtrack to this question when we get to like the opera portion of this podcast. Um, so first, before we really dive into talking about the castrati, okay. we need to just talk a little bit about what is opera, what is choral singing or choir singing, and a little bit about different voice types. Okay. So there are ma four main voice types. Can I guess? Yeah, let's see. Let's see how many of these you know. Okay. Uh, soprano. Okay. Uh, oh, you said main. Okay. Uh, bass. Yes. Okay. Um, is tenor? Yeah. Okay. There's one more. It's a that's female a, voice type. Alto. Yes. Good job. Okay. So, okay. really quick, I know baritone is one. Is that just like a subset of bass or tenor? Kind of. So in choral singing, we talk about bass, tenor, alto, and soprano. 
And choral singing is just like choir. Yes, singing okay. in a choir. And in opera, that's where we get a couple of other words coming in. So baritone is one of them. And baritone and bass in opera are different. But generally, if you are a baritone in opera, you would sing bass in choir. Okay. If that makes sense. If you're a baritone in opera, you sing bass in choir. Mm -hmm. And bass singers in opera, like parts that are written for basses, are like really, 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 really low. And um, bass singers in opera would still sing bass and choir, but they're just like even lower than a baritone would be. Okay. So is bass like not a common thing for opera then? Not so much. No. Okay. Um, and then we have one other voice type that's used in opera and not in choir, and that's the mezzo soprano. Mezzo in Italian means middle. So it's a middle range female voice. And a mezzo-soprano in an opera would be an alto in a choir. Okay. So, like, is a mezzo-soprano higher than an alto? Or are they, Not like... necessarily. They're okay. similar voice types. And, I mean, all of the mezzo-sopranos that I know sing alto in choir, and all the altos that I know would sing mezzo in, oh, okay. like, opera rep. I'm not entirely sure why there are those distinctions, but there are. Um, I'm sure someone will tell me at some point. And then I can let you guys know, too. (laughs) Okay. And the last thing, really, before we really dive into this, is there's another voice type that's really rare, but it's becoming more popular lately. And it's known as the countertenor. And a countertenor is a male voice that sings in a female voice range. So, um... So... Okay, so female voice range is what from traditionally from like what to what? Oh Lord, I am not equipped to answer that. Okay, usually guess, from like the G below middle C to like two well, C's okay, above it. Okay, I guess it. sorry, we don't have to get like that technical, <laughs> but like so. Okay, high, high is what I'm saying. Okay, so like above, obviously a tenor is normal. Yes. Okay, so like is an alto above a tenor? Yes. Okay, that's I guess what that was. Okay, asking. cool. So like generally, how we stack voices is bass is the lowest. Tenor is next. Um, then alto. Then soprano, which is the highest. And a countertenor can sing a soprano range usually. Oh, Maybe okay. not so all like the way to their top notes, but they can sing very high. Gotcha. Okay. And so a countertenor has kind of replaced what the castrati would have sang back in the day today. So, like, if you're listening to Baroque music that Castrati usually would have sang, today it's a countertenor singing it. So, somebody who just has trained their voice to be able to do something similar to what the Castrati could have done, they can't replicate it completely, which we'll get into later, but that's just another voice type to know as we get into talking about this subject. So, is countertenor something you have to train for? Like, it's it's just, like, not something that comes naturally? 
No, I voice. I mean, I think it is something that does come naturally to male voices, but it's the sort of thing where, like, historically leading up to more modern, like, music education sort of techniques, mm-hmm. um, if you were a man, people assumed that your range could be a certain set thing. Okay. And so I think that people are just realizing that voices are flexible and that voices are very personal and that men, some men, can really sing as high as women. And I mean, you can think of people like Adam Lambert, Steven Tyler, who definitely sing way, way higher than what we generally think of as a male voice. Um, Nate Roos, the guy from Fun. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, is another one. And I think that just... In more modern music education settings, teachers are more open to looking at the voice, not necessarily like pigeonholing them into a voice type. Okay. Um, so you said it was becoming more popular. Is it more, becoming more popular in like choral stuff or like operatic? In operatic stuff. So okay. countertenors today are used in some choral stuff, but it's much more because like Baroque and Renaissance opera has kind of like resurged and become more popular in recent years. Okay. Like early music, which is what we call those, um, like that period today has just become like kind of strangely popular. <laughs> so I guess, um, for the listeners at home, what, uh, years is the Baroque kind of period we talked about? No, oh. this is sad. I should be able <laughs> oh, to <no>. name <laughs> the exact years. I could tell you the composers, but I mean, generally Baroque. Is like till the late seventeen hundred. Okay, so I guess um, we talked. <laughs> I'm gonna try a pull from uh, from what I learned already. Okay. Beethoven was romantic. Ish. He Ish. bridges the classical and the romantic. Right. Okay. So we're talking about before, before pre Beethoven. Yes, before okay. Beethoven, like classical. Beethoven was at the very end of the classical period, and Baroque was before that, and Renaissance was before that. Okay. 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 <laughs> now, getting into our actual subject. Um, <laughs> the castrati, again, were men who had been castrated as boys to preserve their voices. Now, castrated servants and, like, eunuchs have existed for a really long time. I mean, like, they're in the Bible. They've just kind of been around. Did we mention what that is, just in case anybody doesn't know? I guess. Like, do you want to... Take um, that, since I'm sure you know. I mean, I guess, like, really high level, it's the testicles have been removed. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know, like, exactly. I mean, I don't either. Anything, Honestly, like, but... nothing I read was that graphic. I kind of have a feeling that they were just taking everything off back then, because medical practices weren't super advanced. Yeah. But, who knows? Yeah, because, like, I know, um, like, this is getting way off topic, but, like, chemical castration is a thing that, like, happens in modern times. Uh, I'm assuming they weren't doing, like, chemical back then. No. <laughs> so. I mean, modern medicine had not been invented, yeah. so. Yeah. Okay. I, we, we can both definitively say that while I am, I know a lot about music, neither of us know, like, anything <laughs> about medicine. But anyway. So, castration had been around for a long time, and there's documentation of singing eunuchs in early Chinese dynasties and in the Byzantine Empire in the 400s, but, Hmm. like, castration purely for making singers first appeared in Europe in the mid-1500s. So, 
The castration of boys for the purpose of making music was really spurred by the Roman Catholic Church, which is very interesting, I feel like. Um, Women at various points in history were not allowed to participate in music making inside the church, so they couldn't sing in any church choirs. And so for a long time, the upper ranges, the sopranos and the altos, were replaced with boys, with children. Mm. Uh, but that's extremely expensive because you have to keep training new batches of boys as their voices change. Right. Um, and also, like, they're children, and so they can't mentally comprehend the music as well as adults could. And this wasn't a problem in medieval times when Gregorian chant was, like, the thing in church, which is kind of, like, monotone, what you would imagine, like, some sort of creepy dungeon, I don't know, music in a movie sort of thing. Um, That was easy. Boys could do that. But in the Renaissance and in the Baroque period, polyphony, which polyphony, many voices, means... um, there were a lot of different voices overlapping and music was becoming more complex. Hmm. And so that was also difficult to train boys to be able to do. So um, the castrati were kind of the perfect solution because their voices. Perfect in. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect with air quotes. Yes. Um, <laughs> because their voices stayed high, you could still have the soprano and alto range because, I mean, music is not that interesting if it's just basses and tenors singing all the time. Says you. I mean, personally, I would prefer to only listen to basses sing forever and ever. Um, There's something about that low voice that probably comes from me playing the bass for so long. But anyway, again, off topic. But um, in 1589, the Pope actually passed a rule that ordered young boys and... um, like any women who were singing in the church, to be replaced by castrati. Uh, the Pope who passed this rule was Pope Clement VIII, and he said, and I quote, the creation of castrati for church choirs was to be helped ad honorum dei to the honor of God. Hmm. So he's saying that mutilating children is like what God wants so that they can sing in choirs in church. That's an opinion. Yeah. Uh, The first castrato joined the Sistine Chapel Choir, which was kind of like the big choir in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in 1599. And by 1640, castrati were in all of the most prominent choirs in Italy. So, um, did you like, were people volunteering? Well, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. So, I, before we do though, I think this is a like really interesting gender perspective, just because like, the Catholic Church is saying that by mutilating these young boys' bodies, um, it's still better than letting, like, a woman sing in church. Like, this gross, perverse thing yeah. is better than letting a woman sing in church. But it's anyway, pretty... we all know that the Catholic Church was a little iffy back then. But luckily, there were some in the church who wrestled with castration um, since like canonical law expressly forbids amputation of any part of the body except when the whole body cannot be saved from destruction in any other way. So there was like some back and forth on this in the church. 
But ultimately, they really wanted the voices so bad that several church leaders just like reasoned that it was okay if there was no mortal danger to life and they had the boys' consent. You gotta get that music. Yeah. Um, an English Benedictine monk even went so far to say that, and this is a quote again, the voice was a faculty more precious than virility as it distinguished man from the animals and justified doing without impiety what was necessary to suppress virility to enhance the voice. The new sopranos are necessary in the praise of God. Yeah. Are they lining up to... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so this is also interesting because one of their stipulations that it's okay to castrate them is that they have the boys' consent. Mm-hmm. Now, castration had to be done before the age of consent um, to have it be effective on the voice. By age of consent, you mean like our modern understanding of the age of consent? Well, or I'm even... not entirely sure on that. It didn't like, the article I was reading didn't specify whether it was modern age of consent or like old-timey age of consent okay. but the age that they were doing this between was between ages eight and ten okay yeah so pretty i can't much before. yeah i can't even <laughs> imagine that back in those days they were like yes an eight-year-old can consent to this happening to them yeah yeah but it was the practice was never actually legal it was always illegal but just sanctioned by the catholic church even though it was illegal <laughs> Um, it was often done by either poor or greedy parents because if you had a son who was a castrato who could get a job in a choir, then you could live comfortably. Mm. But there was like a 10 to 15% chance that your son would make it big and become an opera star and then you could live really comfortably. Gotcha. And this was during a time of like severe economic depression in Europe and war and plague. Because we're talking about, like, the late 1500s into the 1600s and then into the 1700s eventually. But it seemed like kind of an out, probably, for some parents. I'm assuming, I don't know if you, like, saw this in your reading or not, but, like, I'm assuming this wasn't, like, an eldest son, hey, (laughs) go ruin the chance of inheritance and the line. (laughs) Well, part of it, too, is that during this time, a lot of parents were sending their kids to be monks or nuns. Right, yeah. And so that wasn't an elder child thing either, but you couldn't send all of your kids to be monks or nuns because they had to have a dowry. They had to have something that they were bringing to the church. Got to pay the church to be part of the church. Yeah. So this was... This was a way, I think, for, like, much younger siblings who showed some sort of promise in singing to help their families out, whether they wanted to or not. So were they considered, at least in the early stages when this was predominantly, like, a church-driven thing, were they considered, like, some kind of, under, like, the umbrella of the church in a way? Or were they just, like, separate you know what i mean i mean they were just people who had jobs in the choirs in the church they weren't like part of the clergy in any way okay um because it was illegal to castrate boys um parents often would have to make up stories about the accidents and air quotes that necessitated such an operation so there are lots of stories of like gorings by wild boars and boys, like, falling off horses or having accidents in, like, play jousting. The chronic back pain to get medical marijuana of the, <laughs> of, of the Middle Ages. <laughs> Except much worse. Oh, Lord. 
Yeah, not nearly the same. The same thing. Yeah, yeah. So before we talk a little bit about the Castrati and Opera, I do, even though, again, neither of us are medical experts, um, I do want to talk a little bit about what this actually does to the body and why these voices were um, so, like, lauded and so sought after. So usually when boys reach puberty, their bodies produce testosterone, which causes the larynx, which is like your voice box. It's mm-hmm. a little tiny thing that, like, your vocal folds are housed in the larynx, and they rub together to make sound. And it causes that to descend and the thyroid to thicken, creating the Adam's apple. So together, these two things lower the voice. Mm. Castration prevents the testosterone from producing, so the vocal cords don't descend and the voice stays high-pitched. I read in... This is really interesting. There was a medical journal that had an article about the castrati. And that article said that during puberty, boys' vocal cords increased by 67%. And girls' vocal cords increased by 24%. But without puberty, for the castrati, their vocal cords weren't changing at all. So they were even... I guess not... Well, they were probably starting out lower than girls, but they were... I mean, not necessarily. Like, young not. boys and young girls usually yeah, I guess have they similar sound voices. Close. Yeah. So, but definitely, like, potentially ending up higher than a woman would. Mm-hmm. Well, and not necessarily higher, but definitely a different, like, timbre. Which, I'm not sure we've used that word before. We have not. I'm okay. going to ask, what is timbre? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you asked. So, timbre is the quality of sound. And I don't have an exact definition, like, pulled up for you. But essentially, it's saying, like, this sound sounds velvety or the sound sounds harsh or crunchy like or screechy something like could be screechy chocolatey yeah exactly yeah so you can think of timbre as like descriptors okay that makes sense um some other medical implications were that um the surgery was done before anesthetic and obviously before modern medical practices. So it was usually extremely dangerous and painful and could cause death like more often, well not more often than not, but pretty pretty often. Um the lack of testosterone in their bodies meant that the castrati's bones didn't harden. So they were usually either very tall or had very large rib cages and like thus a huge breath capacity. Hmm. So they were able to hold notes much longer than like anyone before um it's not a side effect i would have expected yeah i mean me either i had no idea but like it was described in some of my readings as an inhuman amount of time that they could like hold these notes for as like says it is it's almost like it is the perfect thing to yeah <laughs> no it a is. really good singer yeah and i mean it definitely makes you want to have been able to like experience that at the height of it um well i mean Maybe not. I don't know. I would have liked to have heard it. <laughs> Barring any. We don't have to keep going down. Yeah. Anyway, I won't you, keep you, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, many castrati also developed osteoporosis because of their, um, the size of their bones and the not quite hardened state of them. And their larger than average size taxed their organs and many developed depression, mm. um, as you would expect. Um, but besides the natural aspects of the voice that were caused by castration, young boys who went through this process also underwent, like, 
a lot of training. Hmm. So as soon as they were given the operation, and sometimes before, um, they would be taken into a conservatory if they showed vocal promise. And sometimes they would be boys had already been in a conservatory and were given the option to have this operation. Um, and they were often given preferential treatment over those singers who chose not to undergo or who weren't forced to undergo the operation by their parents. One observer noted that at the Naples Conservatory, and this is a quote, the refectory was in common, but especially in the winter, they took care to guard the little nightingales in training from the rigors and changes in temperature, and so they were fed in their own rooms. Moreover, the food prepared for them differed from the food for the other boys. Eggs, broth, boiled chicken, a generous wine habitually filled these delicate stomachs. Even the clothes these preferred boys wore were such to protect them much better from the season's inclemencies. Sounds kind of nice. It does sound nice. <laughs> and I mean, also, it's kind of like this is an investment that the school is making and these kids yeah. um, don't want them to catch diphtheria and die. Yeah. Or the typhoid. I don't know. I don't know what the symptoms for either of those are. Um, <laughs> the conservatories that they lived in, though, often took part of their first few years of pay as repayment for training, housing, room and board, and sometimes the cost of the operation. <laughs> so, like, Australia had to pay back the cost of the yeah, operation. Yeah, pretty much. Um, one student described their daily routine, and it went something like this. In the morning, one hour of singing passages of difficult execution, one hour of letters, so, like, working on words and diction, one hour of singing passages in front of a mirror to practice deportment, gesture, and guard against ugly grimaces while singing. Um, in the afternoon, a half an hour of theoretical work, a half an hour of counterpoint, um, that's a type of composition, okay. one hour studying more counterpoint with a different professor, and one hour studying letters again. The rest of the day was spent in exercise of the harpsichord and the composition of motets and psalms. So they were working for, that's what, seven, six hours a day? It's a long time. Yeah. And these are like eight and nine-year-olds who are being vigorously trained. Yeah. Um, by age 16, they were usually ready to debut in an opera or join a church choir. So they would leave the conservatory and okay. be housed elsewhere. So would there be like multiple per choir, or is it kind of like this choir has like a more prestige because it has a castrato in it? Not, well, it, I mean, it would depend on the choir. So like the Sistine Chapel Choir, mm -hmm. eventually at the heyday of the castrati, um, the tenors and basses, men and the sopranos and altos were castrati oh okay so the whole yeah that makes sense yeah so the whole choir was castrati and i mean that's another thing you have to think about like with ha like possibly using boys for a soprano or an alto line in that choir is boys don't have super strong voices mm -hmm. and tenors and basses are both very loud generally um and have a lot of power to give and so the castrati with their giant rib cages <laughs> were able to hold up much more <laughs> to the lower men's voices. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so opera was invented in 1600, and that was about the same time that the castrati were joining church choirs, and pretty much immediately opera composers like began using them. Um, and they were becoming like stars. <laughs> So the first surviving opera is Jacopo Perry's Eurydice, and it had three castrati in it, 
two of whom were playing female roles. The invention of opera seria, which is serious opera, um, and during this time was just opera with subject material based in myths or based in like classical Greek or Roman um, like subject matter. Uh, when that came to be, the castrati really turned into like rock stars. They were highly sought after all over Europe and Russia, and they were able to charge, like, fees for performances that, like, no one had ever been able to charge before. Wow. Um, they often played female roles, especially as young men. Um, one observer said, In the middle of the opera, I saw a priest with a very attractive countenance come in. The size of his hips made me take him for a woman dressed in man's clothes. I said so to Gama, who told me that he was the celebrated castrato. The abbot called him to us and told him with a laugh that I had taken him for a girl. The impudent fellow looked me in the face and said that, if I liked, he would show me whether I had been right or wrong. So I think there was definitely, like, a sexual component that came along with the castrati. Which doesn't seem all that surprising. No, I mean, not at all. And, like, in today's world, we're still obsessed with, like, what's under people's clothes. Even though... I say we, like the grand we as a country, <laughs> um, even though that's not necessary at all. Um, but anyway, <laughs> moving on, no need to get political. Um, a Frenchman who was staying in Italy described the castrati, um, the castrati this way. Those worthies, the castrati, are very pretty dandies, very self-assured, and they don't offer their services for nothing. An opera will have three or four soprano voices and a contralto, male or female, with a tenor for the kingly roles. So he's saying those three or four sopranos would have been castrati. Okay. He went on to say, one must grow accustomed to these castrated voices in order to appreciate them. Their timbre is as clear and piercing as that of choir boys and much louder. To me, they seem to sing an octave higher than the natural voices of women. Their voices almost always have something dry and shrill about them. A far cry from the young, mellow sweetness of women's voices. But they are brilliant, light, dazzling, very loud, and very wide-ranging. So, um, this might come up later, but, uh, did they, like, exist alongside women singers? In opera, yes. Okay. And, I mean, in the early 1600s, women still weren't, like, super allowed to be on stage, but more so than they were in the church. Okay. And so, the castrati kind of ended up falling out of favor as gender norms changed and women were more allowed to be on stage. Gotcha. Um, the golden age for the castrati was the late 17th century and the 18th century. And during that time, it's estimated that about 4,000 boys were being castrated every year. Um, only about 80% of them survived the operation and only a handful forged successful operatic careers with the rest singing in cathedral or church choirs it's a lot more than i expected it's a lot yeah it's kind of horrifying yeah so you said it was going through the 1700s well i guess i guess the u.s colonies at the time were a lot more protestant led so is that did it remain like a Catholic thing through and through, but or did it was did it become like a Protestant thing too? Like did it, did it become less and less tied to specifically the Roman Catholic Church as time went on? No, not necessarily. I think during this time, like we have to think, Reformation recently happened. There aren't, there's not really the pomp and circumstance 
surrounding Protestant churches at, at this time as there are the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. So we're not looking at, like, such huge choirs, I okay. don't think. So there's not, may have not been, like, a need yeah. really to have. And, I mean, castrati, like, popped up all over Europe, especially in, like, other Protestant places. Sure. Um, But I didn't read anything about them being in any choirs that weren't Roman Catholic choirs. Okay. Um... I just want to briefly talk about one super famous castrato, Farinelli. Um, he lived from 1705 to 1782. And not only is he considered, like, the best castrato singer, um, he's considered one of the best singers of all time of any voice type. Wow. Um, he came from a family of musicians, and his mother likely had him operated on after his father's death so that their family would have an income. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> He debuted in his first opera at age 15 and quickly became famous. Um, a musician who heard him sing said Farinelli had a penetrating, full, rich, bright, and well-modulated soprano voice with a three-octave range, which was huge. His intonation was pure, his trill beautiful, his breath control extraordinary, and his throat very agile, so that he performed the widest intervals quickly with the greatest ease and certainty. Sounds like quite the guy. Yeah, I know. I wish I could have heard him sing. Um, he became a favorite of royalty all over Europe. Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth of Spain hired him to cure the depression of her husband, Philip V. Was he successful? He was! Wow. Yeah, and Philip V, like, bestowed all of these gifts upon him. Um, he sang in front of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI, um, but Charles didn't like his style quite so much and told him that he thought Farinelli should use less trills and Farinelli listened to him and changed his style of singing. Man. And then he also sang for Louis the Fifteenth, um, who gave him a portrait made out of diamonds. Just, just some diamonds. Yeah. So I mean, like when I'm saying that these men were rock stars, like really, they were so fabulously famous and wealthy. Hmm. Um, women were reported to have shouted "One God, One Farinelli" to him. Um, which I think is kind of funny considering <laughs> just like the role of the catholic church and the creation of the castrati yeah um by the end of the 18th century the practice had started to fall out of favor but it continued into the 19th century um the church back started backtracking on their position on castration in the late 1700s and started excommunicating anyone who performed castration and, That's quite the backtrack. Yeah, I know. And began to allow women to sing in church choirs as a way to, like, combat the castrati craze. Was there, like, a, uh, like, a pope change or something? Like, did, was there something that drove it that you read? Um, it was, I think it was mostly they were kind of like, oh, there are too many of these people <laughs> running around. Um, which, again, sounds very Catholic churchy to me. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and... And I think also it was just a change in gender norms where they were allowing women to sing in the church. Okay. Uh, the last role written for a castrato in an opera was in 1824. So in this, like, sort of sphere, secular music was ahead of the church and the castrati going out of fashion. Um, they were letting more women in. And it wasn't until 1878 that Pope Leo XIII prohibited the hiring of new castrati by the church. The official end came in 1903 when Pius X decreed that boys should take the parts of contraltos and sopranos if women didn't. Um, 
There was an economic revival in Italy around this time, which also meant that poor families no longer felt the need to sacrifice their son's fertility and well-being for a, like, slight chance at a successful career. Yeah. So, um, did, like, the practice fall out of favor in terms of operas kind of, like, roughly at the same time and pace, or did it last a bit longer or I shorter? mean, the last opera role written for, for Castrato was almost 50 years before Pope Leo prohibited the hiring of new okay. castrati so. so but i mean it was the hiring of new castrati so there were still castrati in the choirs so sure. it was like more like 80 years before there were no more castrati singing in the church okay which it's just wild to me that it continued like i mean barely into the 1900s but into the 1900s yeah it was still there yeah um we have one recording of an actual castrato singing and that's alessandro moreschi and he was the last castrato to sing in the sistine chapel choir uh this recording that we're gonna play is from 1902 when he was 44 um he retired in 1913 and died in 1922 and this is not like the prime of his voice but it's the only recording that we have so it's definitely worth listening to
that uh was pretty incredible. Honestly, when he started singing, my mind immediately just went to like, I have to wait for him to start singing because that's a woman singing. That's that was something else. Yeah, and I mean, especially just thinking that this wasn't him in his prime, and his voice is still really beautiful, especially considering also it's a recording from 1902. Yeah. Um, just like what that voice would have sounded like in person at the height of his ability. Like, I can't even imagine. And he he was only in the Sistine Chapel Choir. He wasn't an operatic star. He wasn't Farinelli. Yeah. And, like, you can't, like, separate what they did to him to, like, achieve that. But, like, you can kind of get it, <laughs> as weird as it is to say. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. Because, like, that voice is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I certainly learned a lot about this subject researching it that I had no idea about. Like, I had been briefly introduced to the Castrati and, like, music history classes, like, very briefly. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of history here that should be brought up when they're taught about that isn't. Like what? Just, <laughs> like, the, um, the effects on their bodies as well as the just not their inability to consent to mm. what was happening. Cause I think that like when I was taught about it, it was, it wasn't like this is happening to eight year olds. It was like some people chose to be castrati. Right. Which I'm sure there were some children who chose, I guess. Yeah. Or at least had more of a hand in the choosing. Yeah. And I guess like when I've, learned about it which probably just like a brief like in a music class growing up it's like Castrati <laughs> without like going really into it at all I guess I assumed that like it was a lot closer to the beginning of puberty and so it was like 12 13 and like they'd probably just like <laughs> try to get them before their voices started dropping which still not okay but it goes more to that end of like they were choosing because 12 to 13 year olds you can at least believe a little bit more about choosing for themselves yeah rather than, than like an eight-year-old yeah but very interesting subject. There's a movie that was made in the 90s about Farinelli. Um, not very accurate historically, but supposedly really interesting. And I haven't seen it, but you should go watch it. Do they, uh, do you, I, you probably don't. I don't. Okay. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I wonder who they got to play him and sing. It'd be kind of interesting. Well, I think they used a countertenor, um, not to play him, but for anything that he would have sung. Okay. Um, so I guess, like, for operas that were written for Castrati, um, if any are still done today, do they just use a countertenor, or do they use a woman to, like, hit the note better? Well, that's interesting. Um, Cause, like, I'm not I entirely assume... sure. I think for, for male roles in operas where there were male roles written for Castrati, that countertenors are used. But I'm honestly not sure about female roles, because... Like, thinking about it, I don't know why they wouldn't use women, since it is a female character. Yeah. Um, And that could get a little iffy. And, like, there are definitely roles in opera I can think of where women are in drag, or are playing men, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I can't think off the top of my head of men playing women that's not, like, supposed to be 
comedic. Okay. So that's an interesting question. Hmm. More topics for future episodes. Yeah. Well, we hope you guys uh, really enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, I think we actually actually know what our uh, topic for next episode is too, right? Yes, we'll be talking about listomania, uh, which is the craze that followed Franz Liszt. Yeah, and you could be familiar with the uh, song by that one By Phoenix. By Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really sure the song has any subject matter directly, like related to listomania i don't think it does but because that's the only thing i knew when uh ali mentioned the subject i was like why are we gonna be (laughs) doing talking about a song by phoenix yeah um yeah so that'll be our next episode after this one um in the meantime um if you want please do uh we actually created an official twitter handle to uh so fancy yeah to talk all things our pod it's a pretty simple it's at Clef Notes Pod. Um, there is where that's what we'll use to like officially announce new episodes. Um, <laughs> we don't really have anything else to talk about. So we're not good tweeters, but yeah. you could you could tweet new episode ideas at us. Yeah, or um, we might use that too, just to like uh, tweet like some reference material, maybe like oh, YouTube links or something. We could throw out there for look stuff. Look at you. Yeah, look at me figuring out how to be a podcaster live <laughs> on air um yeah and like always if you're listening to i think apple podcast really is the only one i know about that actually does like ratings and reviews so if you're listening to us on that feel free to drop us a rating or review uh otherwise just enjoy listening to the episode yay